Touching the World, A Blind Woman, Two Wheels, and 25,000 Miles. It's a story by Bernard Smith about his travels around the world on his motorcycle with his pillion, Kathy Burchill. The thing that makes this extraordinary is that Kathy was completely blind. This is Nick Sanders. I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob Beach. I'm Rachel. This is Ed March. This is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Tiffany Coat. Hello, here is Herbert Schmutz. I'm Brett Tax. This is Zoe Cano. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskins. This is Joe Rust. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's Simon Pavey here. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Robert Wicks. This is Elisa Workler. <laughs> this is Ted Simon. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. The Good Adventure Company is a motorcycle outfitter that donates its profits to sustainable charities. They specialize in soft luggage and only sell products they've tested and believe in. And now they're offering guided motorcycle tours. Visit them at www.good-adv.com. That's www.good-adv.com. Bernard Smith was told it was too dangerous to take a blind woman around the world on the back of a motorcycle. But with Bernard as her pilot, Kathy Burchill became the first blind woman to circumnavigate the world by motorcycle. They rode an old BMW motorcycle and they covered over 25,000 miles. That's over 40,000 kilometers. They experienced breakdowns and getting stuck and all the other things that goes along with travel. But they also discovered kindness and generosity of strangers all along the way. It's a truly inspirational story of love, humanity, and survival against the odds. Here is Bernard Smith. My name is Bernard Smith. I'm from Warrington, which is in the United Kingdom. It's a a small town between Liverpool and Manchester. Uh, I'm currently retired, actually. I retired in 2010 to finish writing a book called Touching the World. Are you originally from Warrington? Um, Yeah, well, I've been... Originally, I'm from Ireland, actually. I I knew I heard a different accent in there. I was going to say that, but I didn't want to offend you. I can hear something else in there. Oh, this, uh, my accent is a, is a real mixture of places. My family are all actually from Ireland. Um, my family all live in Ireland, actually. I'm the only English one with a vaguely, well, a very English accent. I was uh, born in, in Ireland. I was born, then moved to Birmingham, which is a large city in the UK, then lived in London, and then lived in Manchester, and lived in Liverpool. So my accent at the moment is vaguely Liverpool, vaguely northwest England, with a little bit of other parts thrown in as well. 
<laughs> so we're talking today about your book, Touching the World, and um, we're going to get into that. But let's start off first with, um, I understand you've been riding motorcycles since a young age and you haven't stopped riding. So tell us about how you got into riding bikes. Ah, I started riding motorcycles, uh, ooh, I was about 17 years old. It, it's 40, 41 years ago, so forgive me if my memory isn't all that great about it. <laughs> It was 1973, uh, so my driving license actually says I passed my motorcycle test. And as you said, I've never been off motorcycles. I've ridden them all the way through my life, and often they've been the only source of transport I've had. I've been on them constantly. Um, I've had all of through the 70s and the 80s, all the, the Japanese bikes when they started to dominate the world, really. I moved on to BMWs, the, the airheads. I think it was in the late 80s and early 90s, the, the flat twin airhead BMWs, and I've been on them really ever since. When did you start traveling with motorcycles before this trip? Before this trip, oh, let me think. I've been, oh, I've been traveling my whole life, really, mainly through, in the 70s, not a lot of people traveled a lot by motorcycle. There were some people traveling around a little bit, but mainly it was through Europe. It was the sort of France and Spain. Well, even Spain was a, was a long way in the 70s. So I've been through most of Europe all, all the way through my life. The, the first sort of real journey, if you want to call it that, was I went down into Morocco in 2004. Um, but before that, it was all sort of three, four-week um, journeys, the same as a lot of people do across their life through holidays. The book is called Touching the World. Um, it's about you and Kathy Birchall riding around the world. Kathy is blind, and yeah. um, I, I assume you set a Guinness Book World's record for the first blind person to circle the world. Uh, as well, I think that it was the first blind person to, to climb um, Young Mountain at Machu Picchu. Um, yeah, we did look into it when we came back about the Guinness Book of Records, but we we can't actually we couldn't actually claim any world records for it, because um, basically it was deemed that it, it wasn't a world record. Not that anybody had ever done it before. It was just that uh, they didn't think that going around the world as a blind person would would be deemed a world record on a motorcycle. So, unfortunately, it isn't a world record, even though we were actually the first to, to do it, or Kathy was the first to do it. Oh, well, certainly uh, certainly a first, uh, if not recognized by the, by the Guinness Book. How did this trip come about? It came about largely because I wanted to go around the world, and I talked to Kathy about it at the very beginning. Originally, I was, I was set to go on my own. And she turned around to me and she said, whoa, hang, hang on a minute, what, what's, what's this I business? Don't you mean we? And so it, it, it started developing from there. And once we, we decided that we were going to do it, then we did a couple of early test trips across the Alps and the Pyrenees through um, Spain and France and across Europe and around the UK, all over the UK, constantly working out and, and refining how, how to do things on a motorcycle in terms of communicating, in terms of getting on and off the bike, and basically testing equipment. We tried that for a couple of years before we actually set off in 2008. Well, you um, work professionally with blind people or, or an, an organization that looks after blind people. How did you meet Kathy? I met Kathy. I was actually 
sort of parachuted in, uh, as as we, we say over here, into a, a college to work with a, a college to organize systems around um, people that were blind and partially sighted uh, in the college. And I met Kathy initially as, as part of that remit I was giving uh, because she was a guest speaker. Uh, in the UK, we call um, people sometimes service users, and Kathy was a service user. Uh, she was a qualified teacher herself, and she was doing presentations on courses. And then I used to be uh, co-opted onto the courses to provide some specialist input. I first met her through through my work capacity with the Royal National Institute for the Blind. And where did your idea for writing the world come up? I mean, you mentioned that you were saying that you were going to do it, and then Kathy said, no, hang on a second, it's going to be we. What made you all of a sudden at this point decide you're going to take your motorcycle and ride the world? Well, I'd always wanted to go off because I'd, I'd been reading books about riding the world for most of my life and, and probably most of us have read the seminal book, um, the, the start of it all for many of us, which was Ted Simon's Jupiter's Travels. And I read that when it very first came out. I found it on the motorway uh, on a wet, really bad winter's night and I, I was engrossed by it. And then I spent the rest of my life wondering if I could do it because when you read some of these books by people, you think there's something very special, something very different than you are. And it's only really when you go out there and do it yourself, you realize that, you know, most people that ride the world aren't special at all. Um, they're just the same as you. And I'm in, in no way am I special. I'm just a very ordinary guy who's lucky to have a chance to, to ride the world. Well, what's it like to ride with a blind person? I mean, that's got to create so many obstacles that you have to overcome. She's going to be sitting on the back of your motorcycle. She's not going to obviously see what you're seeing. Um, how do you handle that whole thing? Well, in the, in the first two years, as I mentioned earlier on, we, we spent two years trying to, to solve some of these issues and some of these problems. And, and the main thing was communication, because it could be very, very lonely without a communication system. So we were very lucky, really, that um, I, I spent a long time looking into auto, intercom systems. And I found one in the end by a company called Autocom, who were, who were very, very helpful when I explained what we were trying to do. So as we were riding, I'd be talking. We'd be talking constantly. We spent our life together just constantly talking. It's something that you do when you're used to and you're working with a blind person. You're just constantly filling in information for them. And that's what I used to do. I used to be describing all the way around the world. I would be constantly describing what was happening. The only time I ever went quiet was usually when something was was the, the road conditions were very very bad and i had to really really concentrate on getting us through certain sections at that point kathy knew that um, you know it was bad she could probably feel she well, she could feel it was bad as well so she knew just to wait and, until i'd solved whatever it was i was trying to get the bike through and then the conversation would start again you're riding your bmw r uh, 100 rt i believe yeah, I've got uh, two two of them. I've got a 1991, which is the, the one that I went around the world on. And then I've got a 95 version, which I spent seven months um, riding around Europe last year. So I use the two of them. When one requires any work doing it, I just swap onto the other one. I'm constantly swapping backwards and forwards between the two bikes. Well, that's kind of handy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So when you're packing to go, how did you pack your bike? Um. 
Originally, we were planning on camping, and then the morning we were leaving, um, I looked at the bike, and I just knew I did not want to ride it. There was just far too much equipment on it. There was far too much. So I took all of the camping gear off the morning we were leaving, which left, more or less, one pannier for Cathy and all of Cathy's possessions, one pannier for all of my possessions and then another pannier which was full of spares and bits and pieces electronics uh, equipment computers all the normal paraphernalia really uh, of travel nowadays and then i had a tank bag which was the cameras and that was that was it really it was nothing super complicated it was just a one pannier full of clothes one pannier full of clothes uh, another pannier full of bits and pieces. So just stuff jammed everywhere. It was nothing complicated about it, really. And in hindsight, did it work? Was, it, was that the method that you ended up using for the entire trip? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, obviously when you, you first set off, you, you I don't know about anybody else on a motorcycle, but I spent about the first three weeks, sometimes three months, uh, packing and repacking bikes in, in different ways and, until you find something that works for you. Uh, when you start again, I was reading um, Ted Simon's book, the second one, uh, Dreaming of Jupiter, and it was really funny when he was talking about uh, the same sort of thing, that no matter how many times you, you travel and how far you go and you can go all the way around the world, you come to do it again, as, as I did last year, and you have the same problems and you, you're carrying far too much stuff. And over the first three weeks, you're just leaving stuff in hotel rooms or on campsites. So you just keep going and keep messing with it as you go along, really. What were some of the things you had to do for Kathy because she's blind? Like, some of the, like I remember reading that um, you found communicators, uh, walkie-talkies were a, a huge asset. Yeah, the, the walkie-talkies were tremendous because when, you, um, when you're blind, one of the things that you've got to be really sort of conscious and careful about when you're working with blind people is the sense of independence and so I bought the walkie-talkies because we would be I don't know in a guest house and we'd be separated because Kath would want to go off to the shower or something and rather than me sitting outside on the floor <laughs> waiting for it to finish I'd give her a walkie-talkie and the first time we really used them in, in full full-on battle once so to speak we were in Turkey the far east of Turkey and it had been raining for about a week, and the roads were just mud everywhere. And the bike was heavy, it was two up, and so out came the walkie-talkies, and I took the panniers off, and I would ride the bike about half a mile away, and then I would come back, and I would get a pannier, and I would get Kathy, and we'd walk the half a mile back to the motorcycle, and then she would sit on the pannier with the walkie-talkie, and then I would walk back to pick up the other pannier, half a mile back, half a mile back again. And we did this. It took about three hours um, using the walkie-talkies and unloading the bike in that way. It took us three hours to do three kilometers. And it's things like that that made the walkie-talkies tremendously useful because otherwise she'd be sitting in space somewhere not knowing what was going on. So we did use the walkie-talkies a lot. Was there ever a time when, you, when it sort of got to you and said, this is too much, like, let, let's call it quits? 
I think no, not not so much that. No, I mean sometimes the the personal frustrations, either Kathy's frustrations of of not being able to help if if I was struggling to do something, or my own frustrations um, would would get to us, and occasionally we'd have a little rattle of each other's cages about something. Um, but no, not really. I mean, in terms of the journey itself, I used to get very stressed about borders, particularly borders where you have absolutely no idea what people are saying to you and you, lots of people wandering around with guns and as, as a Brit when we're not used to seeing people wandering around the streets particularly young people you know clutching Kalashnikovs and, and things like that at the borders so it did tend to make me very nervous uh, the borders but Kathy used to keep me under control um, but when it started to get a little bit too much for me the only time it really boiled over was in India because I had two serious serious bouts of road rage and it got to the point where I just had to get out of India because it was basically I think the, the country was either going to kill me or I was going to end up in jail with road rage <laughs> this was your road rage yeah this is my road rage um, you know the, the, the driving conditions sometimes when you're going around the world in some countries are very very difficult to describe because what keeps most of us safe on motorcycles is anticipation, um, defensive riding, all these words people will use. So we're anticipating what people will do, and often we're anticipating what people will not do. But then in some countries, you can't anticipate what anybody's going to do at any given time. So you tend to get, you know, you, you're living on a very short fuse sometimes when, you know, 10 or 15 times you, you nearly killed each day. And this goes on for, you know, two months. So you can get very, very short tempered. And it, it was, thankfully, I had Kathy with me because I have no doubt that I would have ended up in serious trouble uh, with, with some of the fuses that I blew. <laughs> but, when, uh, when you say road rage, what, are you talking stopping your bike, getting off, waving your hands and screaming at somebody? Um, no, I actually kicked in the whole front wing of a car uh, in in India. Um, I got off the bike. Kathy couldn't stop me. I popped it on the side stand and I just launched at this car and I kicked in the whole front wing um, with this poor Sikh lad looking absolutely bemused and, and shocked and horrified as I was destroying the front of his car with my boots. Um, so it was, it's not something I'm proud of, but I, there was a, a concrete barrier. When you get into Delhi, they were building the underground, the metro in Delhi, and there's a big concrete barrier. It's about 12 feet high on my right-hand side. And his car is pushing on my left-hand pannier, and I'm being propelled into the, this concrete barrier. There's nowhere I can go. There's nothing I can do. I'm leaning the whole motorcycle two up into as if I'm turning a corner into his car um, to, to keep us upright. And fortunately, the traffic stopped. And it was when the traffic stopped that I, I jumped off the motorcycle and extracted um, revenge, really. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, you're, the way you describe the look on his face, he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. No, well, that's the strange thing. It's so hard to to understand as a as a European, probably as a North American as well. When these things happen in another country, it is just normal. It's par for the course. As a motorcycle, um, you you get out the way or you die. It's that simple. Um, cars will pull out, looking straight at you, and they will expect you to stop. But 
if you're riding a, a small Honda um, Honda Hero is, is the common bike over there, 100, 100cc Honda Hero. So what people see as a motorcycle, um, they think Honda Hero, whereas if you're riding a, a 350 kilogram two-up uh, <laughs> BMW, it's not quite as easy to get out of the way uh, as uh, they are used to. So there were some days that I think there was one day in India I was driven off the road about five times. The worst one was about 50 mile an hour into deep sand, uh, two up. How I, I, I managed it to get the bike back on the road at 50 mile an hour in the sand, I, I think I just closed my eyes and took a leaf out of Kathy's book, really. <laughs> two people riding blind on the motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> there was on that day, at that particular point, I think I did just shut my eyes and let the bike do its waggly thing underneath me. And when that they way. cut you off, do they, do they stop and, and look and see if you're okay? Oh, no, no, um, they don't. I mean, it's, it's a complete and utterly different world. I've seen accidents where, you know, motorcycles have been knocked off um, by cars and everything. And they just look and then they drive on. It's just, it's normal. Uh, Bernard, what, what was your route that you, that you took roughly? Roughly, we, we left the UK and the plan was uh, to go to Greece, to Athens in Greece, because I had read somewhere at some point in time that I'd be able to get my Iranian visas, my Pakistan visa, uh, and my Indian visa in Athens. So we left the, the UK and we went down through France and Switzerland and Italy, Croatia and Serbia and Kosovo and Macedonia and all these sorts of wonderful places. And eventually we got to Greece and we stayed in Greece about three weeks to pick up the visas and then we left uh, Greece and we headed over to Turkey and the plan was to go all the way across Turkey over to the Iranian border which we did because we were told we could get the, the visas at the Iranian border it was all authorized it was all done by Tehran and we get to over by the Iranian border and suddenly we find that the visas we can't pick the visas up there even though we were told we could that we had to them up in Athens which was 1800 miles going backwards so we thought to ourselves and what we decided to do was to apply for new Iranian visas and three weeks later um, the Iranians decided to give Kathy a visa and refused me <laughs> <laughs> and at that point I, I did say to, to the consul um, he was a very nice uh, Iranian gentleman I asked him if Cathy could also have a driving license but he didn't he didn't accept the sense of humor of, of being <laughs> British at this point you know could he not get a, a blind woman a driving license so it all went to pieces a little bit at that point but these things happen when you're on the road so we drove a thousand miles back to um, Istanbul and we put the bike on a plane uh, to Karachi in Pakistan because we had the um, the Karachi the, the visas for Pakistan, and uh, that it took us a few days to organise because nobody in Istanbul had ever done it, and and none. We had to do several serious interviews with with heads of uh, people at various departments of the the, um, the Turkish government about it, because putting a, a motorcycle on on a plane and head sending it off into Pakistan was not deemed to be very wise at that point, but we did it. And we got to Pakistan and then we went all the way up through the middle of Pakistan, crossed over into India. And then through all the trials and tribulations of India, I ended up changing the route. The, the plan originally was to go all the way down through India and then um, get a boat. But I changed the plan and I went into Nepal. 
and it was really well myself and Kathy were in Nepal that we we rediscovered the people that we were because we got a little bit lost in India it did it did boil us down into core characteristics of personality really so I was I was very very glad to, to get out alive and get to Nepal from Nepal we we jumped another plane because we couldn't get into Burma I did have a, a vague goal getting through Burma but you do not allow to, to ride through motorcycle. Um, this is opening up now, but uh, as it's called Myanmar. So we put it on from Kathmandu to Bangkok in Thailand. We wandered around Thailand for quite a while, down through Malaysia, and then to Australia, to Perth. We crossed Australia, Sydney, and then into Santiago in Chile, and then came all the way up from Santiago in Chile until we ended up in, in Toronto eventually, but we ended up in Toronto accidentally because we had a lot of problems trying to ship the bike out of America. So we gave up and we just drove to Toronto. And 12 hours later, we were on a plane to Heathrow. You, where did you go through Canada, though? You, you, did you start, you come up through British Columbia and head all the way across? No, but we came up to um, Lake, up around Lake Michigan. And then really all that happened is we crossed the border. Um, and we we just drove, I think we were only in Canada actually one day because we just drove straight to Toronto. I think it was about 300 miles, about 300 miles or so um, that day to get to Toronto. And then we found a hotel and we were gone. We were out of Canada the next day. We were already running out of time, Jim, you say. We were getting near the end of the journey. We'd had significant delays about visas. We'd had about four uh, mechanical breakdowns where it had to wait for parts. So we didn't actually get to see anything of Canada at all, bar the border and then the drive to Toronto. And you were, what, 11 months and two weeks? Yeah, it's about 11 months and two weeks. Um, it's, it's an unfortunate thing that, that when you're time limited, um, you, you realize that sometimes you're having to drive through places and you don't really get to see a lot of them. In the early part of the journey, it's it's wonderful because you've got plenty of time, you feel you have plenty of time. But by the time we got to uh, Los Angeles in particular, when we were supposed to fly out, I think we only had about two weeks before Kathy was supposed to be back in work because we both got a year's sabbatical out of work so that we could do this journey. So LA, we were supposed to be flying out of LA, but it, it became very difficult to get all of the, um, basically our personal possessions. After the, the 9-11, uh, the American authorities became very, um, I'm not sure what the right word is, um, dif difficult, I suppose, about personal possessions. Everything had to go with you on the plane rather than with the motorcycle. All the other air shipments were done absolutely everything had gone with the bike in a big crate so we just bunged everything in to the crate and, and, and off it went whereas in America we had to take masses of personal luggage which was prohibitively expensive in terms of uh, excess costs so I worked out the costing that it was cheaper to, to drive from LA to Toronto and then just put it on an overnight um, plane and, and everything was done very very quickly in Canada. Oh I see yeah that's why you rushed across there. Uh, yeah it's only about six days we, we crossed America I think it was five or six days it was 500 mile days every day for about six days I think it was when we left LA and it was it was a real sad part of the trip actually because I call it white line fever 
and I think that there's a whole, you know, sort of section of the world there that we were so taken with, particularly small town, uh, small town America, as I call it. You know, when you get off the big freeways and you're just wandering through the sort of picture postcard places, as I would call it as a Brit. And it was we were just so um, taken with, with America um, that we, we always planned to go back. Unfortunately, we never had the chance to go back. In hindsight, what, or at least if you were giving someone some advice, what would you advise them if they were doing the same sort of trip as you, you know, limited in time? Because you said that you felt like you had a lot of time at the start, and then, of course, you get to the end and you find out that you're running out of time. Is there any sort of conclusion that you came to through your trip and thinking, okay, if I was to do it again, this is how I'd approach it? Yeah, I think I was talking to somebody about this about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one of the I, I very rarely do presentations. I, occasionally, I do them, and I was somebody asked me that precise question actually about two weeks ago, and I said to them, "Travel slower and see more." I think when you you set out to say circle the world, you know you've got a predetermined start and end point, and so no matter, unless you're going to radically change and alter your plan, you know that you you have to get all the way around. Whereas nowadays, I would I would I never um, plan really to to that great an extent of a, a journey. I, I was away last year for seven months, and originally. I left for, for two weeks to go and see my father in Portugal and I, I ended up coming home seven months later and I just wandered around really and, and really, really, if I, if I landed somewhere nice, I would stay there for two or three days and have a look rather than doing trying to do 500 miles a day. So I would say don't be quite so um, worried about you know the big scheme of things, just travel slower and see more. And so maybe less planning. And less planning, yeah. I'm, I'm not a great planner, and people often ask me about the, the journey that I did with Kath, and they say, oh, it must have taken you, you know, years of planning. It didn't. It, it took very, very little planning. Originally, at the very beginning, um, when people became aware of it, what we were going to do, and for, for some reason, well, not for some reason, the, the media took a great interest in it because the two organizations we worked for put it out into the media, and it, it piqued the media's interest, this idea of a blind woman going around the world on a motorbike. So we were wheeled in and out of TV studios and radio studios and all this sort of thing for a long period of time. And what happened, you know, journalists would turn up at, at where I'm sitting at, at home now and we'd be interviewed by, you know, this newspaper, that newspaper, this magazine, that magazine. And all the time went past me and then things like BMW nearly got involved and, and Triumph nearly got involved and I ended up with about I think it was about three or four months before we were due to leave and I had no motorcycle um, bar the, the one that I'd always had so about three months before I left we left I, I went into the garage and I spent the, the last three months before we left actually in the garage uh, rebuilding the motorcycle because mm. I, I hadn't anticipated taking that motorcycle so very little planning the day we left we, we had no visas for any country in the world and all I knew was I was driving to Athens that was that was the sum total of my plan <laughs> and you just figure it out as you go well, yeah, the problem with people with with traveling, they, they think it's very, very difficult, Jim. I, I think it's because we're so used to our lives being organized around work and around families and around bills and around the calendar. And what I found over many years, not just recently, I found that if you just ditch all of that idea 
everything works out if you're flexible enough just to adapt as you go along. Much like a lot of people said to me, oh, God, weren't you destroyed when, when you got over to the Iranian border and you had to come all the way back to Istanbul? And I said, well, no, I wasn't destroyed. All I had to do was come all the way back to Istanbul and then I'd find another way of doing it. So the, the thing is, too much planning for me ruins uh, a journey. I, I like to have a rough idea of where I'm heading, but it is only that. And then I wake up in the morning and I look at the map and I go, okay, the target for today is this, if we can make it. If not, well, somewhere will do for tonight. It'll be fine. Well, it sort of goes back to what you're saying about travel slowly. Um, when you're when you're saying travel slowly, what what I assume what you're saying is travel slower, enjoy what you're seeing, and if you have to make uh, a change in your plan to fit your time, do that uh, as you go. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. You you shouldn't think to yourself. One of the things I was really really glad about, to, to be perfectly honest. We had a, there was a, a public relations company, um, once again, sort of involved at the very beginning, and they were trying to do a big schedule um, for us so that at this date we had to be here to, to be interviewed by this person to, to do the TV with these people. And when all of that side of it collapsed, we were a little bit crushed at the very beginning. But now that I've come back, I am so glad that I didn't have all of that to deal with in terms of sponsors, in terms of having to meet specific deadlines at certain points in time. When Kathy and I got on the bike here and we left, all we knew was that a year later we had to be back if we wanted to keep our jobs. Yeah, it's sort of, you know, what you see in, in Long Way Round, isn't it? Where you see them rushing, Charlie and Ewan, uh, rushing from one place to another, from one press junket to another. It becomes a completely different experience. I think that that's the thing when it was particularly in long way down that you could see it because from my understanding of it and, and I hope I'm not incorrect in this but it was it was largely due to work commitments that long way down particularly for you and uh, you and McGregor that they were so time constrained that it, to me it looked like it sort of ruined the journey for them so it's the time constraints that can ruin the journey and if you, if you start off with a certain length of time then if you travel slower and you see more whereas if you rush 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 all you do is is you know this sort of 500 600 mile days uh, you know seven i think the longest day i did was about 700 miles i think that was in the states as well and it it just doesn't work for me. These things don't work for me. That's why I would never be an iron butt person, because for me it just doesn't work. Was there a point in your journey that was a, a real turn for you, a spot where where it really struck you like, ah, yes, this this is definitely worth what we're doing. Oh, several parts of the journey, really. I think as a motorcyclist. Um, People often talk about, you know, what's the favorite road that you, you, you actually, you know, traveled on. And I did a, a road. It came down from Cusco in Peru, uh, coming down to a place called Nazca, where the Nazca lines are. And it is a real um, road coming down out of the Andes. And it has everything you could possibly want as a motorcyclist coming down from the, the sort of high Andes. And it was an absolutely stunningly beautiful road. It was probably the best road I, I rode. The most difficult one I rode was uh, a place in Colombia called La Linea. And La Linea just goes straight up the side of a mountain. 
and it was just ridiculously difficult in terms of the hours it took me to do something like six kilometers. I think it took about three hours to do six kilometers. So sometimes as a motorcyclist, it was absolutely wonderful. From a, a personal achievement, Kathy and I, and I can answer on behalf of Kathy on this one, the, the, the climb that we did uh, at a place called Hyena Picchu, which is the, the young mountain that overlooks uh, Machu Picchu in Peru, it was the, the most awe-inspiring day um, of climbing. Kathy was blind. Why would she want to go on a motorcycle trip? Um, it's, it's a good question. She, and once again, she would say to you that seeing is only one uh, sense. That was her, her often response to this question. Seeing is only one sense. So you can talk to the people, you can hear, you can smell the, the things, you can taste the food, you can taste the wine because she, she did like a good glass of wine, particularly the, uh, the Chilean Merlots. She took a, a great uh, attachment to those. So, you know, the, the whole sort of experience of, of anybody with not just a, a blindness, um, a, a visual disability, it's like saying you know, to anybody with a disability, well, why would you want to do something? Well, I, I think a lot of people say that when we just take for granted that we can do these things as um, able-bodied people or non-disabled people, whatever would be the right term to use it in North America. So it's, it's not something that a blind person would ever say. Uh, I suppose it's a bit like a deaf person would, would not say certain things either, or a person that's a wheelchair user wouldn't ask certain questions. I think it's very much a um, sort of a non-disabled question, that one, really. Yeah, I think it's because we often think of uh, an adventure as seeing things and with our eyes, you know, going places and seeing things. But as a motorcyclist, you know that, yes, you definitely eyes are a huge part of it, but also uh, we're exposed to all the elements. So we you know, smell things and feel things. And um, I guess that with, uh, with you sort of acting as a, as a bit of a tour guide as you're going really makes a, a complete trip. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the whole idea of, of the, the tour guide, I mean, I used to um, sort of joke with Kath and I used to joke it with the media and I'd say all I was was a taxi driver. Because that's, in many ways, I was an audio describing taxi driver. And she used to get quite cross with me sometimes when I used to describe myself in that way. But yeah, I mean, as, as a guide, that's what a guide is doing. It's just that my specialism um, was, was working with blind people. So I just applied everything I knew. Um, each blind person is, is very different in terms of what you are required, what, what the person requires or what you need to do. So with Kathy, we were so well connected in, in terms, I knew what she would be interested in. Um, often and sometimes I'll be giving her stuff um, in terms of descriptions and everything and it would be stuff that she would she would want to know she she loved um, going in and particularly with with dresses and clothes and all the different things in different countries the different styles because I mean at, at the heart she was a girl and she liked to know about all these things so I would be describing clothes but the thing that she used to say to me, can't you describe some of the fellas as well? And I would go, well, no, I'm, I'm going to describe all the women. <laughs> and she said, no, no, what, what are the fellas wearing? And I go, oh, well, trousers and T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Very descriptive. Kathy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. once said, being on a motorbike is just like having a guide dog. Everyone wants to talk to you. 
Yes, well, you, you you know, Jim, from your own experience, I mean, a motorcycle is a wonderful calling card. Uh, I remember we turned up in Panama, and uh, the, the bike had been shipped over um, in, into Panama from Colombia, and we'd spent a couple of days sort of working out the paperwork and everything in Panama, and we, we stayed in a guest house um, near, near, the, um, near the airport there, and while we were staying there for a couple of days, Nobody really much interacted with us. Um, there's just, you know, this blind one with a long cane and a Brit guy wandering around this guest house, this hotel place. And then when we got the motorcycle back out of the, the shippers and we turned up at the hotel, from that point onwards, every bellboy, everybody on reception, anybody walking past us in the hotel wanted to stop and talk to us. And they wanted to stop and talk to us about the motorcycle. So it's a perfect, perfect calling card, really. It wouldn't have been the same experience with a, a vehicle, would it? Um, and especially for Kathy, being that you aren't exposed to the elements. I, I mean, I know for good and bad, because, you know, you're describing uh, times there where you're stuck in, in rain pouring down and you're, you're walking through mud, etc. Those are all the miserable things that we sort of live through and afterwards they make the story. But it's really the motorcycle that, that makes the adventure, isn't it? I mean, it, it just wouldn't have been the same going through it in a car. No, um, it's, the, it's the old, I don't know who came out with the saying, it's, it's a bit like the, the saying that we, we often trot out the, about this is, you know, um, it's a bit like a movie, isn't it? You know, when you're in a car, you're watching a movie, but when you're on a motorcycle, you're actually in it. So, yeah, I mean, the motorcycle adds a whole different dimension. I believe you get a similar type of reaction out of people if you're a cyclist. Uh, I've been reading a lot of cycling material over the last year or so, and a lot of people on cycling um, say exactly the same thing. It's the, it's the mode of transport in terms of cycling that, that gives the same sort of buzz out of it, and people want to stop and they want to talk to you. But a, a motorcycle, there's something, to me anyway, as a, as a motorcyclist, a lifelong motorcyclist, there's something unique and something very, very special about going somewhere on a motorcycle. As far as the technicalities of it, what did you do for motorcycle insurance and for health insurance? Health insurance, um, we start. We got that in the UK before we left. It was the one thing I was absolutely, um, you know, committed to, to to dealing with, and it wasn't actually that difficult. It took me a few days to sort it out, and it was it was largely once again through because of the costs of North America um, that it was being a little bit complicated. Because, you know, I, I believe you guys over there have a, uh, well, I don't know about in Canada, but in America, they tend to enjoy being in the lawyer's office quite a lot. So you've got to be, you know, sort of really about $10 million or something in case something goes wrong. So the, the medical insurance we sorted out before we left. In terms of the motorcycle insurance, we were fine in Europe. And then in a lot of countries, we bought it at the border. The only time we had a problem, once again, was when we were coming out of Mexico and trying to add Nogales to come into the States. And it took me about four days to organize um, motorcycle insurance because I didn't have a U.S. address. Uh, well, I hadn't anticipated this. Uh, and I tried to use the hotel address. And everyone got a bit um, sort of squiffy. It's, it's a very English word. It's very... Uh, <laughs> quite difficult about it but I managed to solve it but it was actually easier um, as I think I said in the book somewhere it was actually easier to get insurance in Pakistan than it was in America I mean whether it would have been worth anything in Pakistan is another thing I don't know 
Well, you mentioned getting it at the border. It sounds as if there's a booth there um, where you're just buying insurance. You didn't find that, I'm sure, in Canada or the U.S. No, um, I came out of uh, Nogales and we, we pulled up just not far down the road. There was a, a motel, um, uh, you know, so First Western, I think it was something, one of those sort of hotel chains. And I thought, right, OK, tomorrow I'll sort out insurance. And then I then I found out it wasn't quite that simple in America. So with the, most countries, there is a booth. That's exactly what happens. You know, there's the sort of customs, the aduana, uh, point you over to wherever you go. You have to go over with your, your vehicle documents and then they fill out all the forms and they relieve you of dollars. And you drive away with your certificate in case the police stop you. So was at America, no, there, there was nothing like that at all. I did ask at the border, and they went, oh, no, you'll have to sort that out. There's, there's no insurance to be organized at the border. So I thought with sort of re-engaging it in you know, the first world side of things that it would have been easier to solve. But it was actually the most difficult place to solve these sorts of things. What did you end up doing? How did you manage the, the local address thing that they wanted? Well, what happened was um, they actually did, in the end, use the hotel um, address. It was the first, I think it was called First Western. I'd have to take out the insurance certificate. Uh, they used that. And since we were only driving, because they knew that all that was happening, we were supposed to be out of the country in about a week, because we were only driving from Nogales to LA, and then we were shipping out, which was only, you know, a couple of days, really, a journey. So, but the cheapest they could do it was, was to insure us for a month. Unfortunately, uh, when we got to LA and we discovered all of the shipping difficulties, and we discovered that it was probably far simpler just to drive to Toronto, that we had the insurance to cover us for that time period. But it was actually done on uh, the, the address of the hotel. Did it seem like a lot of money that you paid for the insurance? It, it was. Um, for It cost me for a month what it would have cost me for a year uh, in the UK. But I forget how much that was, to be honest. I think it was 120, $120 I think, uh, for a month. So it, it was it was quite a lot of money at the time, anyway, $120. So, but at the end of the day, there's, there's no point in complaining. It's like when you get busted for speeding or something in, in uh, I don't know, Turkey, and they want, you know, $60 off you because you're done for speeding. And sometimes you've just got to be, you know, pragmatic about it and think, well, okay, this, this will make the problem go away. So it happens. Uh, which you did get busted for speeding several times, I understand. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> not Come on, it was at least twice. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got busted for speeding twice uh, when I was coming back from the Iranian border to get back to Istanbul, twice in the same day, actually. <laughs> and it was, it was really funny. The this, this second time, th this car went flying past me and flagged me down, and it was an un unmarked police car. And they escorted me into the car and they showed me this wonderful video of the two of us flying past the police car, <laughs> trying to get back to Istanbul. And I did try and actually get them to give me a copy of the tape because it would have made wonderful footage for YouTube. <laughs> but, but they wouldn't actually give me a copy. I was really disappointed. I, I, I offered to pay more, um, more than the fine if they would give me a copy as well. <laughs> And they wouldn't do that. No, Boy, that says something. No, it was, no it, it was all above board. I, I'm not in any way, shape, or form um, saying that there was anything illegal going on. This was all genuine. Uh, I was busted for speeding. I was done twice in Turkey. I was done in Costa Rica as well. 
um, with a radar gun. There was a bit of a, a, a disagreement between myself and a very nice policeman in Costa Rica <laughs> who ended up with, with $20, uh, I think, in his pocket but because there was no paperwork involved. But he was happy, I was happy, I, I, I got away. And then he told me, when I paid the, the $20, he told me every radar trap um, between where he was, where he was sitting with his gun and the next town. Uh, so, yeah, um, good investment then. It was, uh, well, you know, sometimes you have to pay a toll to travel certain roads. If you ride in France, it can cost you, where, where was the most, uh, Mexico. It was costing me $40 a day to ride in Mexico because of the toll system in Mexico on, oh, on the D roads. And I forget how many miles, it about 2,000 miles um, up through uh, Mexico. So sometimes, it's like I got done in, in Thailand a couple of times as well. Uh, and once again, I, there was no paperwork involved. And, you know, you can get all squiffy about it. And I know that some people go, oh my God, I would never pay a bribe and I would argue and everything. But I'm stood beside the road in Bangkok, which is a mad city to ride a motorcycle in. I'm trying to get out the city. The policeman will take has got my documents. He's, he's got them. And if if I want to go all official, I have to go across the whole city after he has finished his shift to the police station. Whereas I would have been, you know, 200 miles out of Bangkok um, by the time he even finishes his. So, so sometimes it's quicker and easier, and I'm not saying it's right, but you hand over your $10 and the problem goes away. Sometimes it's just more pragmatic to, to do that. After you completed the trip, um, which country or which place uh, really stuck with, with Kathy as a place that she'd like to return to? Oh, yeah, I, I would say it would have to be probably Peru. She absolutely adored Peru. Um, she adored everything about it. I think it was it was influenced by. I mean, the, the Peruvian people were, were wonderful. Um, we, we we met so many lovely people, and they were so kind. I mean, the whole of Latin America really. She was absolutely taken with Latin America because of the the, the way they deal with disability. Um, the way that cues magically disappear, the way that as soon as her white cane would appear, whether it be at an airport or at a border. I remember that at the, when we were crossing from Ecuador into um, Colombia, and she climbed off the bike, and everyone really ignored us before that, and then she climbed off the bike, as, as we normally did, and out came the long cane, and bang, 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 it all clicked into place. Um, within 15 seconds, there was Colombian troops around us, gently shepping her over. They were sending off people to find chairs and tables so that we could sit down and wait while they did all the paperwork. It was that level of care and that level of niceness of ordinary everyday people in Latin America that burned a memory um, into her brain of the kindness of people. What an extraordinary year. Um, it's, it's almost ironic that you're running out of time at the end, as you had to rush back to work, because in the end, Kathy's back six weeks, uh, I think it was, and finds out that she had breast cancer. Yeah, that's correct. And and what began then is, is a, basically a four-year journey on, on a whole whole new um, 
level of, of thinking about the world and, and experiences really so yeah then began four years of uh, a lot of the things that people sadly have to go through the operations the chemotherapy the radiotherapy the drug treatments the, the following year of another set of drug treatments so it all goes on and it goes on and I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, have experienced um, or they know of people unfortunately with the, the plague that is cancer she died of secondary cancer um, in an area of the brain called the pons. So, unfortunately, it was inoperable from, from the moment she found out. We found out um, that she had somewhere between three to six months to live by the time they found the, the brain tumor. Did you guys ever go on another ride in that four years? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to remember when I just said to you that we, we found out that she had three to, three to six months um, left to live. So that would be in 2012, and we'd just come back actually in 2012 from um, we'd been all over the Western Isles, um, sort of the 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 coast of England. Uh, sorry, the coast of Scotland in the UK, up the the north end of the UK, is full of little islands, and so we spent oh, about three four weeks catching all these little ferries and these little boats between island and island and islands because at that point we had a, a, an F800 GS. As Kathy got fed up, fed up of old bikes breaking down, so <laughs> when we got home, she insisted that we we had a new bike that could be serviced, and then I wouldn't be out in the garage till three o'clock in the morning trying to fix it and all that sort of stuff. So she she bribed me really, and she bought me an F800 GS, and we went all over the place on that. We were all over once again Europe and Spain and Portugal and France, Germany, um, all over the Adriatic coast and Italy and. So yeah, we, we we were traveling constantly. We 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 settled sort of back into. We we didn't have a lot of choice because when originally we had planned to come back and sell everything, and then just take off. That was the the plan. But unfortunately, as you say, we came back and six weeks later she had her first diagnosis. So all that plan um, sort of got held in abeyance, and we went back to riding three four week holidays and most weekends away. You got drawn in. You were on the trip, and the both of you fell in love with travel, and you're willing to to uproot your whole life and and hit the road permanently. That it's incredible because a lot of people say that. What what where was the point in the trip where you came up with that? Oh, it was in Turkey very early on in the trip because we met um, quite a lot of people in Turkey, and we we did actually fall in love with Turkey. We thought Turkey was an astonishingly beautiful place. And it was one of the places that we, we thought that we might very well, uh, if we could find the right place, go and live there. The thing we always had to be careful about, though, was obviously Kathy's blindness. Um, because, you know, if anything did happen to me personally, then it would have been tremendously difficult for Kathy in, in a foreign country. So we were thinking about these things. Well, how could we manage it? Where could we live? Um, but yeah, I mean, we had planned to sort of jump ship. But, um, you know, um, a friend of ours, Graham Fields. Have you have you interviewed Graham? Oh yeah, yeah, I know Graham. Yeah, you know Graham. Well, I mean, Graham has, has just moved to Bulgaria. I uh, saw that. I, yeah, yeah, I was over in Bulgaria last year in exactly the same town, and I went house hunting there as well. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, it, what it is, I I don't know. I think the problem is when when you're away, Jim, you were sort of exotic. Uh, I don't know whether that term makes much sense to, to the listeners, but when you, you're aware you are very exotic, wherever you are, you stand out, you're different. I suppose it's a bit like being a mini-celebrity. 
in some way or another. And then you come back to your own world. And I remember coming back to the UK. When I'd broken down before anywhere in the world, within a short period of time, I'd be surrounded by people trying to help me. And I came back to the UK and I got eight miles um, from, from Heathrow and the bike broke down. And I was there for about three hours trying to fix the bike and there was hundreds of people walking past me. There was cars driving past me and not a single person stopped. Not a single one. Cathy stood with it leaning on her long cane um, and we're, we're trying to work out what's going on here. And so I think what it is, perhaps when you go away, you, you get used to standing out, to being a little bit different. And perhaps people miss that. And that's why they need to be going off and, and seeing all these new places again. And also, perhaps it fulfills a psychological need of being different. But you said you you already made your decision while you were in Turkey, so you didn't have that juxtaposition of coming back and saying, oh, this is so different than my trip. You you felt it while you were out there. We, we did feel that way because we'd, we'd noticed we'd noticed and talked about that sort of thing very, very early on, how the... Um, that people stop and talk to you because you are different. It, it's it's a very very sociable thing, and it's I don't know about living in Canada. So I don't know about living in, in America. But I know that compared to say the UK, I mean yes, you'll be walking, you'll be walking into the shops and talking to people and everything. But complete and utter strangers in Peru will stop you and start talking to you because you're different. In Pakistan, in India, people want to talk to you all the time. So it, there's something else running there, I think. I think there's something different running. It's very difficult to put a finger on it, but we noticed it by the time we got to Turkey. And does it make you feel that that other places in the world are more friendly? They're more more caring? Oh, that's a really difficult question because, I mean, I know lots of, I've been traveling a lot, particularly the last two and a half years and it's still the same sort of thing i know that whether it is that they're more caring i I really can't answer that i know that because you are different people will engage with you far more that's the only way i can i can truly describe it it's because you are different people will engage with you well as i mentioned at the start the book is called touching the world and uh, it's available where Oh, it's available all across the, the normal booksellers in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the online booksellers of Amazon in the UK, all the normal bookshops, you can just walk in and, and uh, order it. You can actually order it on uh, the website as well, which is uh, worldtour.org.uk, and you can order it through the publisher because I'm, I'm fortunate um, we had a we have a publisher, so well all the details are on the website anyway. So you can just look on the website at worldtour.org.uk and see all the different places you can get hold of it, Jim. And might I add that you've got a, a ton of reviews out there that are all really going on and on about this book. Um, <laughs> were you a writer before this? Um, I was I was an academic, Jim. Um, I've spent my whole life in education. I, I've taught at most of the, the, the levels of education in the UK at, at university level and, and all the way through sort of 16 to 18-year-olds. And So I've, I've always been a writer. I mean, I was published oh, a long, long time ago. I can't remember, late 80s, but it was academic work. So I've always been able to string words together, but I, I just had never had any idea that I would end up writing a story about a blind woman going around the world on a motorbike. It's it's not something you tend to think you can do. So I 
I've always been a writer. I've always scribbled and I've always done short stuff and I've always written academic. But it's just it's the first sort of truly out there novel that I've written. Bernard, it's a wonderful story and it's going to be a great read. We'll put the link in our show notes so listeners can find your book. Thanks very much for coming on to Adventure Rider Radio. You're very welcome, Jim. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've been speaking with Bernard Smith, and you can find out more about Bernard and Kathy Birchall and the book, Touching the World, A Blind Woman, Two Wheels, and 25,000 Miles, by visiting his website, www.worldtour.org.uk. That link will also be in our show notes, along with other things. So drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and you'll find information about this episode and all the episodes we do. And of course, they're all available free for download. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. The Good Adventure Company is a motorcycle outfitter that donates its profits to sustainable charities. They specialize in soft luggage and only sell products they've tested and believe in. And now they're offering guided motorcycle tours. Visit them at www.good-adv.com. That's www.good-adv.com. Hey, drop by this website and check this out. You want to find a good cause for motorcyclists, and there's a lot of travelers, a lot of motorcycle travelers that are getting behind this. www.lostforareason.org That's lostforareason.org Well, as you can probably tell by the music, this wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. My name is Jim Martin, and man, it's been great to be here for you this week. You want to do us a favor, do Adventure Rider Radio a favor, drop by the website, send us your comment, your feedbacks, go by our Facebook page, tweet us on Twitter, we're ADV Rider Radio on Twitter. Don't forget to drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and you can find all the episodes there with the show notes and photographs, and of course, they're all downloadable for free. Download and enjoy. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Adventure Rider Radio is made possible through Canoe West Media. And special thanks to our wonderful co-producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Austin Vince, and I'm on Adventure Rider Radio. If you listen to this, you rule me.